Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. Episode 21. Courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's a quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. Mary Ann Radmisher. Kimberly Lyle is a dynamic speaker, facilitator, and award-winning consultant whose insights about resilience, growth, and purpose inspire people to live their greatest potential. Through numerous traumas and successes, Kimberly has learned what it takes to thrive through uncertainty. Her mission is to renew your faith in yourself, your hope for the future, and your belief that you can handle anything that comes your way. In a weary world, Kimberly provides hope that there is a positive way forward. Oki, I wish to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the ancestral lands and traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Siksika, Kainai, and Pekani Nations. This land is also the homeland to Métis Nation, Treaty 7, Métis Regional Zone 3. We pay respect to the Blackfoot people's past, present, and future. When I started researching the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada and learning the tragic truth, I felt ashamed about what I didn't know. As a European settler, I took for granted the many privileges afforded to me. And growing up on a farm in southern Alberta, while I felt a deep appreciation for the soil, a spiritual connection to the animals, and I witnessed the innate and beautiful circle of life, I realized that I had not been truly honoring the original peoples of this territory. We recognize the thousands of Indigenous peoples from many diverse nations who call Alberta home. We acknowledge the land as an act of reconciliation that honors the authentic history of Turtle Island and the original people of this territory. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You are looking glowing and beautiful in red, (laughs) giving us early signs of spring uh, to break up the white and brown and gray that is outside. (laughs) Thank you. I think we all need a little burst of color in our lives right about now, so I'm happy to bring it. Absolutely. We're all feeling the sad, the seasonal affect disorder at this time of year. (laughs) Absolutely. I don't know. Did you want to do any acknowledgement? Yeah, or anything to add there. Yeah. Yeah. Or is there anything you'd like to add to that? Actually, I was just thinking what a beautiful job that you did in crafting that. I think it's so important with land acknowledgements that they be heartfelt. Yes. It's great to have templates that help us understand you know, which treaties we're within or, or which which land masses we're located on. But it makes it so much more powerful when it's something that comes from the heart. And mm. I, I was honored a few weekends ago to receive a Blackfoot name, which I'm still processing what an honor that was and how incredible it was to be part of that and what a gift it was. And I've just found throughout my career, there's been so many times I've been able to work on reserve or work with different Indigenous people. And it's always something that is so Mm heart-connected, that work. Yep. So I don't want to add to it per se, but just to acknowledge how much I felt what you were saying and how much I appreciate the love that you put into it, because that ultimately is the whole purpose in the first place of a land acknowledgement, right? Reconciliation, when they say it's about truth and reconciliation, truth has to be part of that. And the truth is what comes from the heart is is the truth. So, yeah. Yeah. Chris and I had talked about that formerly, about using the land acknowledgement, but my fear was I didn't want it to come across as virtue signaling. Yes. And so, Chris, yeah. you did a very nice job there. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it definitely felt true. And I must say, it's so interesting. I'm in week 12 of the Indigenous Canada course through U of A. And I realized that I was scheduling the learning as if it was like a to-do list within my day. Yes. And then realized partway through that like that is the complete opposite of what this is intended to teach in terms of getting to truth, of slowing ourselves down to recognize mm-hmm. what is true, to feel that connection to nature, to learn the history, even though it's extremely painful to mm-hmm. learn and unlearn. 
And I caught myself at times needing to take a break, like needing to let one of the lessons really like sit in, particularly after the resident school chapter, which ironically was the one I thought I knew the most about. It was the most painful on the most challenging exam questions to answer. Mm. So it's a it's a journey. <laughs> it's a process. I'm trying to do my part. And yeah. I think what's so beautiful about what you just said, though, is it, it kind of reflects for me the struggle that we have as a, a world and a society today mm-hmm. to, you know, we have thoughts about the world or we have thoughts about other people or we have political stances about issues and the instinct is to dig into what we think we know because that's our comfort zone rather than allow ourselves to sit with other people who have different perspectives and to learn and to sit with confronting things that are different than what we thought or that challenge us to think a different way. Because once you let that in, then you're faced with the challenge of what do I do with this now? How do I go forward with this? Mm -hmm. And does this change my decisions or who I am? And I just think that, you know, especially politically, people are so polarized. And if we could just do what you're doing, like open our our minds to let me hear another perspective. Let me hear another person's story. Let me hear a different version of the truth I thought I knew. And let me sit with that for a while and let's talk about it and let's together figure out how we go forward together because we are a society, we are a community, and ultimately the best solutions come when we all get to have our our say and we learn from each other and we adjust and we adapt and we grow. So, but it's not easy, right? It's it's not easy. So I love, I just love what you said about that because sitting in it and just recognizing that it's hard and sometimes exhausting and painful, but that's where the magic happens, right? It's where the growth happens. What I was taking away from what you were saying there as well is this idea of moving things from doing like into becoming. Or to, being. To sit with it and be to with being. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And to integrate it into ourselves, right? So that we have that bandwidth to hold polarizing views. Yes. It's actually exciting when I think about it. Like it makes me feel hopeful. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because, you know, I've been a large proponent of the status quo, the capitalist ideology how it does not work for me I am like the antithesis to what (laughs) what the western world is striving to be and so for me it's just so nice to have other perspectives have to see other people walking through life in different ways is really beautiful yeah yeah are you open to sharing what blackfoot name you were honored with yeah it's kumanoi samiaki which means blue paint headdress woman. Wow. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Marianne Crowhealy with the Blackfoot Family Lodge Society is the person who sponsored me to receive the name. And I adore Marianne. She's a beautiful person and she's been there for me in many ways in the last few years. But the gentleman who actually gave me the name is Dwayne Mistaken Chief. And he's done a lot of really incredible things in his life and is an elder elder, elder, elder. He's he's kind of been the head of many societies and done many things. And I just want to note that I am not Indigenous, which is an assumption sometimes people make, and, and I can understand why, mm-hmm. but I just want to be clear I'm not, which is why the honor, I think, is even more incredible for me. But Duane was one of the people that went to Aberdeen many years ago to authenticate a headdress that they had there and was able to bring it back to the Horn Society of the the Blood People. And it was one of the first items that was repatriated to the Indigenous societies. Mm -hmm. And the headdress itself had blue paint in it. And I didn't understand this until Duane explained it, but in the society that there's different paints and the different paints have different status and the blue paint is the highest status and of the societies the horn is the most is the highest status and so he took a name that was quite similar basically blue paint coup it was a coup to bring this headdress back so when he gave me the name blue paint headdress woman I admit I just started crying it was such a such an honor and such a I can't express, I struggle expressing, I I recognize that it's a powerful name and that with that comes a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. to serve and to help and to love. And he talked about, you know, serving communities and, and giving and supporting and loving. And even when I got the name, he said, you know, now that you have this name, 
it is a signal to our community that if people need help, you'll give it to them. And so I just feel a lot of responsibility that goes along with that honor mm-hmm. and with that name. And I, I just marvel that I've been so lucky to receive it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Thank you. I hope this is an okay opportunity to transition. Yes. Has that connection always been there for you? I'm curious about that. And then how, I guess, from there, we can tie it into a little bit of your story when where you begin. Sure. It's funny. It's been there for a long time. So when I was 20 years old, I was given a Blackfoot blessing by Horace Gladstone. And he was also a member of the Blood Tribe. And it's funny, I met him through the Lions Club. Oh, Yeah. When I was 18, I was sponsored by the Lions Clubs in Lethbridge to go on a youth exchange to England. And I was the first person or the first young person in Lethbridge to be sponsored on this exchange program. So it was a really big deal. And I lived there for seven weeks with four different families in four different parts of the country. It was an incredibly life-changing experience. I got to see how different families lived. I really got to see how people who care about their communities, so people who are members of service clubs, etc., do little things every day that make a difference in the lives of others and how powerful that was because I was traveling to different communities. I could see the impact that this group was having on each community. And it it made me realize that that whole country was a better place because everyday people just like you and me were doing things in their community to make life better for others. And then when I realized that Lions Clubs is a global organization, it struck me the world is a better place because of this work that these volunteers are doing. And I realized I could be part of making the world a better place mm-hmm. by just contributing, right, in, in small ways every day. So when I came home, um, I was so enthralled with this idea that I could I could change the world. And I wanted to give back to the Lions Club. And at the time I was going to college and they said, well, you know, you've probably got a lot on your plate, but there's this youth camp that is coming to our community and maybe you want to volunteer there. So I got a hold of the camp director and I thought, I'll just go and wash dishes or something. And his name was George Takashima, a brilliant man, beautiful man. He said, oh, I'd like to put you in charge of the leadership program for all the students who are coming from around the world to this camp. So here I was every summer putting together this leadership curriculum and teaching students from 20 or 30 different countries out in the woods in Waterton. <laughs> you know, we're, we're sitting out there in the middle of nowhere <laughs> um, and me teaching them leadership skills and really believing in all that we could accomplish, knowing that I, here I have these beautiful young souls in front of me with so much potential and just tapping into them being able to see what they're capable of and sending them back home to their countries all over the world with this knowledge that they could work in their communities to make it a better place and that we're going to change the world together. So it was at an event one night that we were celebrating this camp and the students were all there and we had invited all these members of the Lions Clubs together to see this. And I just really wanted the Lions members themselves to feel what I felt and to understand the impact they were making on the world. And so, you know, we were getting up talking and we were, it's just a great night of celebration. And at the end of it, you know, I didn't know Horace very well. He was from Cartston and he didn't say much, but he just said to me, Kimberly, you're on the trail of the buffalo. And I thanked him and I thought, I don't know what that means. And it took several years to figure it out. Horace's father was the first Indigenous person in Canada to be appointed to the Senate of Canada. And this was two years before Indigenous peoples had the right to vote. In Canada. It, it blows my mind when I think about that, mm-hmm. right? Because that wasn't that long ago. Nope. And it was actually my husband's father, who was a member of parliament at the time, who suggested that Horace's father be the first Indigenous senator when Prime Minister Diefenbaker asked who should we appoint. So they had a connection. And my husband the whole time said to me, you know, this is for you to figure out. I can't tell you what it means. And I knew, you know, the significance of the buffalo to Plains Indian culture, right? It, it was food, it was shelter, it was clothing, it was everything. And how important it was to hunt the buffalo every year. But I couldn't figure out how, how does me and a non-Indigenous person be on the trail of the buffalo? So many years later, after many trials and tribulations, many successes and many failures, I had an epiphany And I had come home from this work trip and I was super exhausted. And 
my husband had taken a, a walking stick I had and burned on the trail of the buffalo into it. And I saw it and it just clicked. And really what it meant was that when the tribes selected a young person to go on the trail of the buffalo, to go find where the buffalo had migrated so that they could prepare for the hunt, that trail was hard and that trail was lonely and it was difficult. And they had to pick the right person who had the skill and the stamina and the courage to keep going, especially when they didn't know what they were doing, especially when they felt alone, especially when they doubted themselves because the people were depending on them to find the buffalo. But the most important part wasn't just to find the buffalo. Then that person had to come back and share what they had learned with everybody mm-hmm. so that everybody could find the buffalo. So what Horace was telling me all those years ago was, Kimberly, you are going to walk some hard paths in your life. And up until that point, I already had. And you're going to learn so many things along the way. And then you're going to come back and you're going to teach others. You're going to share those lessons with other people. And you're going to help them understand that they have the ability and the talents and the courage to walk their own path and find whatever their buffalo is. Mm. So I sometimes sit back, ladies, with my life and I think it's incredible that I've lived this. I mean, from a 20-year-old receiving that blessing that took several years for me to understand to the life I live today and receiving this Blackfoot name a few weeks ago. There's always been elements where I've been connecting with Indigenous people and where I've just been so warmly welcomed and accepted for who I am and been allowed to share what I have to give. And I I don't take that for granted. I honor it. I almost feel, I feel such a responsibility when I talk about it because I never want to misrepresent. Even when I figured out what On the Trail of the Buffalo meant, my husband said to me, you need to call Horace right now and tell him. You need to tell him that you figured it out. And yet I had this little bit of insecurity still thinking, oh, but what if I'm wrong? What if I don't understand this? What if I, you know, as a white girl, mm-hmm. getting this wrong? And so I, th- I said, ah, and he's like, no, really, Kimberly, I think you should call him right now. And I hesitated and I thought, I'm only home for three days. I have to be back on the road and I'm going to be gone for two weeks. But then when I get back, we'll go see him and I'll tell him face to face. And in that way, if I'm not quite right, he can explain it. Like this was my plan. Mm-hmm. And my husband kept saying, Kimberly, I don't think it's a good idea. I was stubborn. And so I waited and Horace died while I was on my trip. Mm-hmm. And so I got back in time to attend his funeral. And I want to say I, I regret that. I do. But what I will say is that later, my my first speaking materials, I actually called them on the trail of the buffalo. That's what I spoke to. I used to go into high schools and, and student leadership conferences and tell that story. And, and there's quite a lot more to it, but I would share that. And so I went to a Lions Club meeting one night and Horace's wife, Aileen, and one of his daughters was there. And I handed them a brochure, so nervous thinking, what are they going to think of this? And they just lit up in the most beautiful smiles. And they said, oh, Horace will love this. We're so excited to share it with him. And I just felt that peace after that. Oh. I've been really lucky. I've I've been able to teach on reserve many times. I've been able to work again with Blackfoot Family Lodge Society, supporting their transitional housing expansion that they're working on right now. There's just been a lot of really wonderful ways I've been able to support and be supported. I can't help but draw a parallel I've worked a bit with Indigenous people as well, but because my faith is more rooted in Eastern Chinese philosophy, but there's so many parallels. It's always a return to nature. Yes. Life is reflected through nature, and that's where you go to reflect. That's what you return to for your example, for your metaphor. It's all connected. And and I hear that in your story as well, this interconnection between well, it is nature. We are nature, essentially. It's the, it's the oneness, right? I was going to say the same thing, a oneness and a wholeness. Yes. yes. And that we're not separate, right? Yeah. Like even that, like I acknowledge the privileges I have as a white person, but I also view myself as an extension of all of humanity. So yeah. I don't see Indigenous as separate, no. if that makes sense. Like we're all one. Yes. And I know through my own work with that as well, I just think it's this has been the whole issue with colonization that we know Apparently we know what's right or we know what is the supposed way to live is. And I, I can't help but think every time I'm there, we have it wrong. Yep. We, we have we so have much this, more to learn. We have this ass backwards. <laughs> yes. Well, again, it goes back to 
And, and this is what I've learned on my youth exchange. People from different countries, different cultures, different walks of life have different experiences. And who's to say one is better than another? Exactly. Right? So yeah, I think we just have to open ourselves up to understanding each other as humans, as Carissa said, and respecting that at the core of it all. Mm-hmm. Like it should be about love. It should be about support. It should be about we are all on this planet together. And how do we recognize what healthy living looks like, what well-being looks like, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, all those things, economically, you know, how do we just go forward as human beings and and try to understand each other a little better? Yeah. And share and learn from one another, right? Like you, you spoke about following different Buffalo paths, some of which led to suffering or yes. to hardship. I would love for you to share some of those paths with us too, because I, I honestly feel like we're connected most by our pain and our suffering. So mm-hmm. Yes, that's a that's a really lovely way of putting it, actually. <laughs> it's true. I have to say, as a speaker and also the consulting work I do, it's so interesting what you just said, because everybody has pain. Mm-hmm. Everybody suffers. I often say when I'm speaking that every one of us has scars, and some of them you can see, but more often the bigger ones you can't see. And yet we feel like either we're the only ones or we're supposed to get through life without pain. It'd be nice, but it's just not realistic, right? So most of what I do as a speaker is tell stories about the painful things I've been through and what I learned from them and how I keep having hope moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I think people resonate because, again, we do all have that pain. You know, I grew up like a lot of people have. You know, my parents divorced when I was young. Being in a single-parent family has got its challenges. I was the oldest sister, daughter. And we lived below the poverty line for a lot of my childhood. And so, you know, all those things where you can't buy the right clothes and you don't fit in and kids are can be cruel on the playground and they tease you and those voices get in your head and they they sit there for the rest of your life that are telling you you're fat, you're ugly, you're not good enough. You know, that was a hard road, even from the beginning of my life. If I actually look at, you know, what inspires me and what has my whole life to live the life that I've lived. It's those formative years feeling so frustrated that I know there's more to life. I remember a family receiving social services, being being that family and never being able to get ahead. No matter what we did, no matter, I I started babysitting when I was 10 years old to earn money and never being able to breathe, to relax, And just feeling so constrained, like there were so many barriers in front of me and knowing, I don't know why I knew. I always had this feeling deep inside that there was more for me out there, that I had something to give, that I could be powerful in this world. Mm. And every time these barriers were put in front of me, this frustration that life can be more than this. And I just remember promising myself that one day I was going to work really hard And I was going to make it in this world. I was going to prove my value. And I was going to go out there and I was going to change things. I was going to get in front of decision makers. And I was going to say to them, this is what it's actually like to live in poverty, to to have the system not help you when it's supposed to be there to support you. And we're going to change it so other kids and families don't have to feel this way. And so, you know, there was that. And after my youth exchange, when I got back and I went to Lethbridge College and got my business administration diploma, I started working with Community Futures in Tabor, went out there for a year and a half, great experience, and then started working for Chinook Country Tourist Association as their marketing coordinator. I had zero background in tourism, <laughs> but I had my business diploma. And afterwards, I remember when they hired me, they said, you were the least qualified candidate, but you had so much passion in telling your stories and you just brought us in. Your enthusiasm made us realize like we had to have you, which was great feedback. So I did that for almost two years and then our general manager left and I applied for the job. And at first the organization didn't want to put me in that job. They said, you're too good at the marketing. And in my brain, I thought, well, if I can't grow here, I'm going to leave. So they let me apply and I ended up winning that job. I had these great dreams. I was going to Revolutionize. I was going to, you know, I loved my country. I loved my home. I loved Southern Alberta. And I thought, 
we need to celebrate all that we've got here and just show our potential guests what we can be. And I was working on this two-year plan and almost all the way through it, uh, we had a, a tragedy strike where the finance manager that I hired stole a whole lot of money. She forged my signature and the bank didn't catch it. The auditors didn't catch it and bankrupted us. So here I am, 28 years old, the head of a, a nonprofit that's been around for over 30 years, completely bankrupt. And then it got worse three weeks after we discovered this, that lady died by suicide. And wow. You know, that was years ago, but every time I share this story, I remember I'm back in the lawyer's office sitting there as he makes a call, hangs up and tells me this is what's happened. And just remember feeling like this bucket of water had hit my face and thinking my immediate thought was, why didn't she call me? I would have helped her. And then being stunned at that thought because the three weeks prior had been so hellish, so horrible, had completely uprooted everything I thought about life and, and all those around us that were suffering and, and just in agony over what had happened. Mm. It was just tragic, you know, going back to the office, telling my staff, victim services came in, which they were amazing. I can't say enough about that program, how wonderful it was. The media showing up, I'm on camera less than two hours after finding out talking about what a tragedy it is that someone has lost their life over a decision that they made. Mm. And then coming to work the next day, realizing not only do I have a bankrupt organization, the person who created the crime is gone. The money has gone. She, she had a gambling habit, it turned out. And now what? And having to decide, do we rebuild? Like, why do we exist in the first place? Just crazy. But I, I will say, as awful as that situation was, and it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I learned so much. I learned so much about organizations and people. You have to understand your mission and your purpose and why you exist in the first place. It's so important because that's how you decide how you're going to move forward. And we worked really, really hard, but we turned that organization back around. And three, four years later, our auditors stood in front of the room, new auditors, and said, I've never seen a turnaround like this in my entire career. Yeah. I had actually expanded the organization. We were doing groundbreaking work that was leading the province and the country and how tourism was being approached. It was incredible. I also ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I don't want to paint this picture as though it was all roses, right? It was a horrible time, incredibly painful. I did what I think is a a reaction for a lot of people when they go through trauma, which was just to close down on those emotions to bottle them up all I could think was I have to fix this I have to fix this because I've just ruined everything I've worked so hard to build even though it wasn't me that did it it wasn't I wasn't the person who stole the money but I felt responsible as the CEO and so you know I just worked really 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 hard and then once the organization started to even out a bit and things looked like they were okay that's when I, I burnt out and really went to a dark place just all, all the emotions, the anxiety, the panic, the weight of what had happened. And it took years to work through that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm just drawing so much parallel, I think, between you and Krista as humans, mm -hmm. as you're sharing your story. I couldn't help but seeing Krista in that same, in like how you're sharing. I always felt like she had this openness to the world. And this is what I I kind of felt through you is, that there is, there's more to life. There's this, I have a bigger purpose. And, and transforming that pain yeah. into a passion and using it like fuel for something that is much bigger than you. And what's so beautiful about the fact that, I thank you for sharing the fulsome story and yeah. both the shadow and lights, light aspects of it. What's beautiful is that because you've done the work to go back to it and revisit it and now share the story of it, like the pain that you felt in that moment of hearing the news that she had died by suicide is palpable and again, connects us and then helps us see that there's a path forward, right? I don't want to paint by any, by any stretch that suicide is, suicide is a very difficult thing to talk about. And for myself, I suspect for both of us, when you've been to that dark place, you completely understand. Mm -hmm. 
there are l- probably little tiny moments that are, are the result of me being able to get out of that dark place. But there were also moments that I myself could have died by suicide. So yeah. anyways, thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful. And I appreciate what you just said. I, I really, it's amazing to me, especially lately, how many people I've talked to who have said, I, and when I say I, I mean them, but myself as well, that you sometimes don't realize how how far you can fall, mm-hmm. how hard the ground is when you finally hit it. I used to think that if I worked too hard or I burnt out, you know, I'd see the wall before I hit it. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You run into it. You end up on the ground <laughs> and then you look up and you're like, how did I get here? And then you realize I can't actually stand up again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't get off the ground. And whatever brought you there in the first place, once you're in that place where you're stuck on the ground, it is so frightening. And I just remember one day after having such intense anxiety, I, I mean, I went from somebody who was was doing a lot of really big things, volunteering all over the place, running organizations, you name it, to I couldn't get out of bed without help. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drive. It was humbling is such a a word that doesn't even begin to describe it. And one day realizing I have no hope mm-hmm. right now. I cannot picture continuing to live like this. And so I just, I want to recognize what you said, Krista, because we don't talk about it. No. And yet I think if more of us did acknowledge how scary it is to be in that place and what it takes to get out of it and to have empathy for people who make the choice. Yep to end their lives, it's because there's so much pain. Yeah. It's just you want an end to suffering. Yeah. That's that's what it's about. And ending your life is more comforting or perhaps less suffering than living. Mm-hmm. So when you were on the floor, when you thought you would see the wall coming and didn't and fell down, <laughs> yes. how did you eventually learn to stand again? I had a ton of support. A ton of support. I mean, my husband... He was the one who would say, okay, you need to get up. Okay, put these clothes on. All right, eat this. The compassion and love it took to stand beside me through that period, I can't even... Mm. I say I can't imagine it. I can because he was there. And later in life when he got sick, our roles reversed. But (laughs) the, um, the patience and the love it takes to sit with someone, you can't solve it for them. You can't. No. But... I knew I wasn't alone and that he gave me his strength when I needed it. And there were people around me all the time that were giving me strength when I needed it and could see and keep reminding me that there can be better moving forward. So that was huge. Over the years too, I I have a psychologist that I am very thankful to have and adore and getting therapy to help through that is critical, I think. So it was that and you know, the little things. I remember one day in particular, it was shortly, actually, I think it was the same time as I just realized not having hope, but he had me write a letter. He said, I want you to think of someone in your life who you're really upset with right now and write them a letter. And I want you to put in there everything that's hurting you. Like, just get it out. And I thought, okay, I picked a person and I thought, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna feel so much better when I get rid of this anger and this frustration, right? And I, I sat there and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I cried. And when I was done, he said, okay, how do you feel? And I said, I feel worse. How can I feel worse? <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> he said, all right, now I want you to write a letter thanking that person. And I thought, are you crazy? What? <laughs> I'm so angry. What, what are you talking about? So think about it, Kimberly. Is there anything in this relationship, in this, and where you're feeling right now that you can be grateful for. And it's funny, the light bulb just clicked. And I realized that, you know, when you go through trauma quite often, and especially something like a fraud, you start to look for all the negative things because you're afraid of being hurt again. Yes. And I very much, I'd always been the kind of person who had, you know, even if things are bad now, tomorrow they'll be better. Like I'll have hope for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I'd lost that. All I was doing was looking around for the next thing that was going to hurt me, that was going to hurt the organization, that was going to hurt the people that were working with me. Like all I could see were the clouds in the sky. And that simple act of having to change how I looked at life, look for what to be thankful for, look for the beauty again, Mm. made such a difference. I will say it didn't happen overnight. It took honestly years of training myself 
to not automatically look for the pain, but to look for the joy. But that was what changed. And that's today. I mean, if I look at everything that's happened since then, that continues to be how I get through life with with hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of things come up for me because the word the word for that kind of trauma is betrayal trauma. <laughs> I love that. You, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I think it's a fairly new term because it, it's come through a lot of the um, narcissistic relationships and, and cult dynamics. So the hypervigilance that that sets up because nobody wants to be duped again. Yeah. Right. And so looking around the corner to say, okay, is this person going to take advantage? Where are, my, where are my eyes not open? And so that's kind of what I heard in your story. Okay, there's there's that element. But then I also hear, like Krista has, the positivia bias, right? In a way where the light is so, hmm, it's a life force. The light is a life force for you. Yeah, yeah. for me too. Yeah. And so when it's gone, it's scary yes. because yes. that's what always pulls me back up, gives yeah. me the courage to keep going. And I just want to honor that. I would say the majority of people probably do function more effectively with that, with having the hope restored, having that light restored, yeah. looking for the gratitude in life. I, I say this because for me, my path has to be almost opposite to that. So I have to go into the depth. I have to go into the darkness. I have to accept there's no hope. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? So I have to, I have to like die, essentially. <laughs> Existentially, I have to die unto myself. To be reborn. Yes. I know there's probably a few random people out there that have the, the same orientation. That's interesting. Yeah. And there's yeah. something to be learned from both, right? And again, yeah. to acknowledge that we need darkness in yeah. order to see the light. And so for all of us, that darkness is inside of us and we can't turn away from it or shy away from it or eventually it catches up to us. Yes. And for those of us who feel connected to that light... I love everything about what you shared in terms of, again, that courageous um, spirit that you have, the tenacity, the bravery to keep getting up every morning and to try. And that over time, if you keep doing that over and over and over again, eventually you get a little stronger and eventually it gets a little better. I know for me, um, when I was in that darkest of places where I myself just longed for death, it was very much self-inflicted for me. It was all the internalized pain and I I hated myself so much. that I couldn't see one thing about myself that would will me to keep going. And I don't know what it was exactly that made me decide to choose to try one more day, but I woke up thinking, okay, what would happen if I tried to love one thing about myself? Mm-hmm. And so I remember getting up the next morning and I could hardly look in the mirror at myself. This is also when I was in the depths of my Crohn's disease. I was over 200 pounds. I was suffering from anxiety and depression. But I looked in the mirror and I could look at myself directly in the eye and I could say, Carissa, I love your eyes. And that was it. It started literally with my eyes. (laughs) And over time, like, and again, counseling, and I would say I was able to heal myself and come to a place where I loved myself and nothing to do with my exterior. So I moved from my eyes to really like shedding or releasing all of the, the parts of myself that I thought gave me value. And learn to find this deep inner knowing and love for myself for who I am, more like on a soul level. So anyways. I I want to hear so much more about this, Carissa. And I just need to say, first of all, it's brave for you to share this. The way you're sharing it is openly. And I think, I, I was thinking when Sharice was talking about, you know, needing to go into the darkness. And I feel like in the last 10 years, and especially in the last year and a half, because my husband passed away a year and a half ago, that's been the biggest growth piece for me is I still want the light and I still look for gratitude to help me find it. But I've also had to learn how to sit in the discomfort and quit running from the pain. Yes. Mm -hmm. And to figure out where's the pain coming from. And sometimes it's, it's a minor thing, you know, a decision I have to make. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's something that's been there for a long time that's been trying to get out that I've needed to face, Yes. decide what I want to do with it, grow from it. And the more you sit in the discomfort, it's never easy, but the better you get at recognizing this is only a period of time that I'm going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be worth it. Because when I come out the other side, I'm going to have learned, I'm going to have grown, I'm going to have made some decisions. And then I can go forward with some confidence, right? And to know that actually the beauty is inside all of us. That is where you find the hope. Like I look at you both on the screen right now. And Chris, when you were talking, 
You're blowing my mind because I look at you and I just see this incredibly beautiful, strong, talented, smart, heart-led woman who wants so much to give to the world and has so much to give. And Sharice, when we were when we first met, I was like, my mind is blown. I could talk to her forever because you have such great thoughts. And again, it's all aimed in how do we help people? Mm-hmm. How do we connect on this level where we can recognize that there's so much potential and love and talent and ability within others? I can see it in you. Yes. You can see it in me, yes. but we struggle to see it in ourselves. You Absolutely. just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And that is a gift that you have in terms of helping people see the see their potential. And so I would love to, to know a bit more about when you first saw that potential in yourself and how you came to be the woman who you are today that now shares your gift of helping others see their potential. Oh my goodness. it's It's been little bits, little bits over the years. I can tell you when I started as a speaker, I, I never dreamed I'd be a speaker, right? Again, I was that, you know, shy, fat, chubby kid who got teased in school, who didn't put her hand up, who never, you know, was always picked last for the soccer team at recess. I mean, that was who I was. And I think, again, growing up the way I did, I just wanted to avoid trouble. Mm -hmm. It was during teaching at that leadership, that youth leadership camp, which I actually ended up being at for 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So the founder of the camp, George Takashima, was a pastor. He'd moved to Lethbridge to be the pastor of the Japanese United Church. But his former career had been as a school teacher and a principal, which I knew, but okay, didn't think much of. Really, that was the impetus for him forming the camp. He thought young people, high school age, had such incredible potential and that giving them leadership skills at an earlier age would help them to realize that. So the camp had half kids from North America and half kids from around the world. And after two years of working with him at the camp, he called me up one day and he said, Kimberly, look, you have a way of speaking so that young people listen to you Mm -hmm. and they believe in themselves after they hear what you have to give them. Every high school in this country is looking for a young person, especially a young woman, to come into their schools and give that to the kids, especially because we have so many girls who are struggling with insecurity about themselves. Yes, I really think you should be a speaker. And I wish I could tell you that I was like, oh, great idea. (laughs) <laughs> but like, oh, hell no. exactly i'm like i'm not a speaker i mean geez glad you love me but no like i can't do that george was one of these guys that once he made up his mind something was going to happen it happened so he just kept pushing he just kept saying it and i was like oh no no george i can't do that and i'll come to camp but I, i'm not a speaker until one day he called me and he says okay here's the deal I am the president of the National Student Leadership Association. All the student councils and all the high schools across Canada belong to this. And our national conference is in St. John's, Newfoundland this fall. And I've booked you as our keynote. And I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, yeah, you're going to, you know, we're going to pay you 500 bucks and we're going to fly you out there. And this is the day you're speaking on. And I know that that's pretty intimidating for your first formal speech. So I've also booked you at a high school in Lashburn, Saskatchewan, two months ahead of time. So you get a chance to practice. And I just thought, okay, I have to do this now. It's so incredible that, again, what we just talked about, he could see the potential in me and the talent. Yes, mm-hmm. I, because of my insecurities and fears, didn't want to see it. But because he had set it up, I thought, okay, I have to do this. And what's really interesting is, think about my worst fears. I was not cool in school. I was not the popular kid. Again, I didn't fit in. So what am I doing? I'm going into a high school assembly to be the speaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the worst place you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. This is what nightmares are made of. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I thought, you know what? People, especially young people, teenagers, do not want to be preached at. I need to walk in there and I need to share with these students my stories of the worst moments of my life and the best moments and what I've learned from both and just be as brutally honest as I can. Tell the truth. Yes. And that's what I did. And the place was completely silent. I had them the whole time. And when I was done, they loved it. And the more I spoke at high schools and at youth leadership conferences and whatnot, this just kept happening. I was connecting with them, which is exactly what I'd been doing at camp, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that was the start of it. But honestly, for so many years, so many years, especially when the fraud and the suicide happened, you know, that took away so much confidence that I had to rebuild. 
I just was always of this mindset of, I just have to keep proving myself. I just have to prove my value. I just have to prove that I belong here. And I don't want to generalize that this is just women, but I do feel like quite often as women, we're trying to prove that we should have a seat at the table. We should be allowed to get that promotion, whatever it is. And it's only been recently, even after being a speaker for all these years, that I've been able to say, you know what? I am who I am and I'm good enough the way I am. And I'm not done growing. I'm going to keep learning and growing and I'm going to keep bringing the best version of myself forward as I learn and as I grow. But I realized that true comfort, true security, true strength comes from trusting in who I am. Mm -hmm. Not lurking for that external validation, not looking for that title that justifies to the world that I'm, I'm okay because I've got this name. No, it's me knowing who I am and believing in myself. That's where it comes from. You are not here to prove yourself. You are here to be yourself. Yes. Oh, I want that on a t-shirt. That's so perfect. This is the exact journey I have also been walking. (laughs) And I would say just in the last probably two years, that has also been the shift that's happened for me. I'm no longer proving. I'm here showing up as my vulnerable, authentic self in every room. And my kindness doesn't doesn't imply weakness. I'm kind and I'm strong. Mm-hmm. I'm vulnerable and I'm succinct. Uh, you know, like we can be these multifaceted human beings. We don't have to fit into any box. And we don't have to be anything that anyone tells us to be. Yes. Honestly, I think this is a bit of a gift of being an outsider. The very stereotypical male gender idea, right? Because they're on the inside... There's so many almost more barriers to stepping outside of their box. Hmm. The gift of being an outsider is because we realize I never fit in that box to begin with and I don't want to. And so I guess I just want to bring a little bit of empathy too to the other side. Hmm. How do you see the box when you're in it? Well, and the box has been working for them for a long time. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. And Kimberly, I I just want to also touch on the identity piece that you had, because I see this parallel with you and Chris as well. For me, it's funny because if I have to prove myself, I can't even begin. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know proving, I've already lost. Because I'm like, you already don't believe in my wholeness, in my potential. You can easily decide at any moment if that's true or false, if that makes sense. So to me, it feels like that's nothing about me and I can't even begin. I can't win that fight. I love that because it it kind of takes it out of the equation, right? Yeah. Whatever that illusion of a perfection or ideal is, I cannot sustain that. I'm the, a very flawed human. <laughs> <laughs> well, and because the expectations that you set for yourself are insanely high. Yeah. So it's it's your it's your I can't own even get there to begin with. Yes. 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 But I think Krista has enough confidence or belief that you can you can meet that idea. I guess the hard part of that is then it becomes a part of an identity. And so what I'm hearing in your story with the, with, you know, the travel is like so much of yourself gets invested in that. Not only are you grieving the loss of a job, it's the loss of a self, right? It's an existential loss. Totally. And I think it's tied to what is success. Yes. Yes. Right? Like as a society, we're so driven with being successful and what does that look like? And it's actually courageous to say success is working a four-day work week (laughs) or taking the weekend off or staying home to be with my children or whatever that looks like. I think, especially those of us who feel like we need that external validation, having those titles or those symbols of success, and you never actually get there. Like, this is the thing, right? You you get to that milestone, you're not celebrating that you got there. You're already thinking about the next thing that you need to do. And you're never actually content, happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris and I. <laughs> and it never feels like how you think it's going to feel when you get there yeah. either. Like, I'm driven by this feeling I'm going to get once I arrive. And then once I arrive, I'm like, nope, still not enough. Like, you yeah. still don't totally. feel <laughs> yeah. the full sense of fulfillment. Yeah. So it's it's shifting that, right? It's coming up with something different that says, what is success or what does contentment look like? Or what does purpose look like? And how do we live in the now? Yes. yes. I've had to accept. I'm going in accepting I can't do it all. Because I know for me, being in treatment and being so close to death... I have to realize just being alive sometimes is enough. 
and your presence is enough. The space that you hold for others, particularly in our family, I can't give words to the gift that that is just by you being, like just mm-hmm. by your presence. Mm, thank you. Without having to do anything. Mm-hmm. Because you do that. You, you have built your life in a way that leaves space for every single person in our family. Yeah. I think that's what this past six years has been for me is accepting. I can't do the rat race. I can't. I've tried so many times and failed that I had to accept, okay, I have to throw that out. That isn't what I can do. Yes. And now you get to build a new way. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just going to say, I think it would be so wonderful if most of us would recognize the rat race is not healthy. Mm -hmm. It's not real. We've all talked about COVID to death and what it did to our society. (laughs) But I think for a lot of people, those first months of suddenly you can't do the rat race anymore was such an eye-opener. And for some, it might've been a bit of a relief. You know, I've heard people say almost like they don't want to acknowledge it, but wow, it was great that suddenly I could just not have to do that. For others, it was incredibly uncomfortable because now that that space isn't filled up, maybe things in your life that you didn't recognize you wanted to change or needed to address are staring you in the face. I mean, there's a million different reactions to it, but I think it showed us that, you know, it's not, the rat race is not healthy. That's, I, I just can't think of any other way to say it. And what concerns me is that here we are now, three years later, and we have embraced the return of the rat race. <laughs> yep. I know. I was hoping it wouldn't go back to the full. Yeah. And that's where we have to do what you're doing, which is making a decision to say, this does not work for me. So what does work for me? And how do I be intentional about how I'm going to use my energy, use my talents, show up in life so that, again, whatever my version of success looks like, my version of happiness, my version of purpose, I can actually live that. Mm -hmm. I do want to own in saying that, though, that comes from privilege because I can. Yes, that's true. There is a very real financial element to life. And because I have supportive parents and family, I can do that. Yeah, and I would like to say this is why I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing with providing financial equity for women, women in business in particular, because the through line that I see in every single woman-owned and led business is that they are creating a new way. So they're they're not only creating a business that is profitable and sustainable for the betterment of their family, but that contributes to a better world in some way. Yeah. There's always a deeper tie to creating something better or to leaving the world better, to creating new systems and new ways of operating in a way that's collaborative, in a way that doesn't create scarcity, in a way that refuels the planet. And so I just wanted to say that that's part of the reason I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing is to help give every woman the privilege that you have in terms of being able to sustain themselves and carve their own path. Excuse me, sorry. I know you had been talking, Kimberly, that you're on a journey with this with yourself right now, right? Where where do I want my life to go? Does this feel really relevant to your current path, I suppose? Totally. Because, you know, I mentioned that um, my husband passed away a year and a half ago, but he was sick for seven years prior to dying. Mm. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I told you about being at Chinook Country and how I, we'd been through that horrible trauma and then I rebuilt it and brought it back. And literally at the height of my career, I was fired because an individual got on our board of directors and was intimidating and harassing me. And I had gone to the, to the police for advice and they said, this is not normal. This this needs to stop. And instead of protecting me, I got fired. And so here I was starting over. And the blow that that had for me, the mental health blow, yes. mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't work mm-hmm. for a period of time. And not only that, I had my psychologist verifying that for mental health reasons, I was not capable of working. I had disability insurance. The insurers would not accept that diagnosis. Yeah, yeah this is the issue. It's just, it's such a punch when you're already down and what you thought was going to be there to protect you is not. And so anyway, I end up fighting a legal battle for wrongful dismissal. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what? I had many people, including my psychologist, telling me this is not going to be good for your mental health to fight this. It took seven years Wow! because I was fighting the insurance company for the organization. It was one of the most painful things I've ever been through. I could not have done it myself. And eventually I did get a settlement 
<laughs> it's funny. I just remember going to the courthouse thinking, where are the balloons? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there should be confetti. Like, this is such a big deal. It was nothing. Here's your check. And oh, anyway, I, I bring that up. I had to start over. Uh, consulting found me. People knew the work I'd done. And I, I was able to do some amazing projects. I, I did an oral history project. Then my husband got sick in the middle of all this. And, you know, we went all over the country getting him surgeries and, and things. And I share all this because, you know, our roles reversed and I had to start preparing at one point knowing that he was going to be dying and really wanting him to know that I was going to be okay after. And then he died. And then not only was I dealing with grief that I wasn't prepared for, even though I thought I was, but caregiver burnout. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so in the last year and a half, it's been, okay, Kimberly, what does the next part of your life look like? And what do you believe in? Right? Like I had this moment of sitting there going, I've just watched this person that I loved so much, that had so much knowledge, that had so much still to give, that had so much life in him. And in a heartbeat, it's gone. And is it worth trying? Is it worth continuing to grow? Is it worth doing the hard things when in a heartbeat it can be gone? And I had to sit there for a few days and really grapple with that. And when I came out of it, I thought, yes, because life is a gift. Mm-hmm. And there's so much for us. And so I've been figuring out what does that look like for me and really leaning into, I know I'm meant to speak. Go back to On the Trail of Buffalo. I'm meant to share lessons. I'm meant to inspire people. And I know I I do it and I can do it. And then figuring out what does that look like? Yeah. In the last few days, I have been really grappling with what do I tell people that I do? It's the first thing people ask me, you know, you're a speaker. What do you speak about? <laughs> and what I landed on was how to live with courage. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Because I think... All of us in the world right now, we've always needed courage. And we've talked a lot in this last hour about the different times we needed courage in our life. But we tend to think that it's those big times only. No, every day requires courage. It requires us to make choices. It requires us to constantly look at what do I believe and what do I want this life to be? And how do I want to show up and to do things when they're they're hard, when you're scared, when you feel unsure? And just to trust that even if it doesn't turn out okay, I will be okay. I can't help but feel it's like a full circle. Mm-hmm. Talk about in, Indigenous, you did a full circle return to home, a homecoming. That's what I feel like it is. <laughs> yes, I love that. And this idea that all of the gifts and support that your husband gave to you, you returned to him. Just like in those early days when you were given the path of the buffalo and your Blackfoot name, that all of those things that they saw in you your courage, your benevolence, mm-hmm. your truth-telling, your grace, your light. You are now giving to yourself. And because that is who you are, you are sharing it with everyone else. So thank you for the light that you bring and for the gifts that you share with each of us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I love what you just said, Krissa, about learning to give it to myself. That's actually probably the cherry on top right now, is all that time thinking I had to prove myself being able to finally give myself love is probably the greatest piece of growth. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. (laughs) I'm hearing to a shift that there was a fighting spirit always within you, but I feel maybe you can describe this, but when you surrender to the fight, Mm. do you understand what I'm saying? There's a forward momentum now, but it's coming from a a life force energy. It comes from love instead of fear. (gasps) Oh, There you yes, go. Yes, there you that's go. It. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yes. Very well stated. So that's that's kind of what I feel the shift has been. Yes. And it's wonderful. This is what I want to go forward doing for the rest of my life is helping other people, mainly through speaking, but if it's through consulting or training, that's fine too. But I think in every interaction, we have the ability to give our gifts to others. And I want others to just feel what I'm starting to understand and feel and to be able to own who they are and love who they are and show up. Wow. What could we create if people felt that they are free to do that? I want to live in that world. Yeah, me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't think of a better place to wrap up our conversation than there. And um, if you're okay with it, we would love to then jump into the fast five questions to wrap things up. Yeah, let's do it. I'll try to be fast. (laughs) 
What is the funniest thing that has happened to you lately? Oh my goodness, this was yesterday and it was not funny at the time, but I think it's funny now. (laughs) So I was going through some of my speaking videos to pull clips to put on YouTube and I was using ClipChamp and I am not technologically savvy. So for me, it's literally where can I cut and download? And I just pulled together this clip and I had downloaded it and I had uploaded it to YouTube and there was no sound. I thought, what What did I do wrong? So I kept trying again and again. I Googled, there's no sound. What do I do? An hour and a half of this. And then I realized that I had the speakers turned off. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love that. <laughs> yeah, so That's relatable. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to laugh, right? I was like, mm, it's time for a break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. My worst fear is um, when I can't find my phone and I'm looking for it everywhere and realize like I'm either on it while I'm looking for it or it's like in my pocket. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And what is your favorite place in the world? I actually don't have one, but I will say anywhere in nature. Mm -hmm. So whether it's Pavan Park or I have a little cabin on a lake in Saskatchewan or when I'm back in England or yeah, I just love being anywhere in nature and anywhere the sun is shining. Oh, Me perfect. Too. Chris uh, is a sun baby yes, too. I, my favorite place is on my deck, only in the spring and summertime. In the winter, I look at it from the inside. But in the <laughs> yes. summertime, sitting on my deck with the sun shining and yeah. And sis, what's your favorite place? The nighttime <laughs> and when I can see the moon and the stars. I love being when it's pitch black and just the stars and the moon. Nice. And what is the kindest thing someone has done for you? I have been the recipient of a lot of kindness, but the night my husband died, I got the call from the hospital. This is happening. You need to come now. And I texted my best friend, Amanda. She met me at the hospital at 4 a.m., sat with me as long as I needed to be there, drove me home, poured me a big glass of brandy, (laughs) (laughs) and sat with me until about 10 that morning. She left. I started making phone calls you know, all the things. She came back at six o'clock that night, made me have a shower, made me eat supper, poured me some more brandy. And then we sat up, she sat on my couch and I sat in my husband's chair and we talked and we cried and we laughed until neither of us could keep our eyes open. Then she put me to bed and she slept on my couch and she stayed till 10 the next morning and did it all over again. Came back at six, slept on my couch a second night so I wouldn't be alone. The funeral home called and said, it's Alberta law that you have to identify the body. And I said, I was in the room with him when he died. They said, doesn't matter. It has to happen. And I know my husband would not have wanted me to see him like that. So she went for me and then went with me to the funeral home to make the arrangements. She called me every night for over three months. Mm, That's amazing. Yeah. Even now, when I think about it, when I try to share that with people, the level of love that was there, yeah, that is one of the kindest things I've ever experienced. And I will say that experiencing that has really opened my eyes to what kindness is and how we can show up for others and how we can be a good friend to others in this world. That woman understands grief. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. love you, Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, we love Amanda. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, I'm crying as a therapist here. So, <laughs> thank you. It's beautiful. What is the best or worst advice you've been given? Uh, so the worst advice isn't necessarily a specific piece of advice, but it's been advice that I knew instinctually was the wrong thing for me to do, but I did it anyway. And I have numerous examples of this throughout my life yeah. where I just, someone told me you should do this or you need to do this. And my gut was screaming, no, this is not what you should do. But I ignored myself and I did what I was told, which the flip side of that is the best advice I've ever got is when people have said to me, Kimberly, just be you. Just show up as Kimberly. Do you. Beautiful. Okay. And our final question, what is your dream or vision for the world? Oh, I feel like we've talked about it. Mm -hmm. My dream is where we can all show up as ourselves with all of our scars and all of our gifts and we can listen to each other and we can learn from each other and we can meet in the middle and we can look at what we want to do differently and better in the world and not 
be polarized my side or your side, but our side. And we can fix things and we can make the world a better place and we can do it from a place of love and support and we can feel good and share in what each other brings to the table. That is my vision for the world. Yeah. You're a beautiful soul. Thank you for offering to share your time with us and with Mm -hmm. all of our listeners. We appreciate you. Thank you for asking me and thank you both for creating this space for these conversations. I think that you are making an impact on the world and I'm just so glad to be a small part of it. Oh, I guess we need to say though, Hmm. where can people find you? How can people find you? We cannot forget that. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. My website is KimberlyLyle.com. So K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-L-Y-A-L-L.com. I'm also available on Instagram, um, Kimberly Inspires, Facebook and LinkedIn. And if nothing else, follow your podcast and reach out to Chris or Sharice and they've got my number. I'm happy to connect with anyone. Amazing. And And we'll link all that in the show notes as well so that everyone can find you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, my name is Bodie. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.